My testimony is I came back from the Kenai with not one, not two, but three rocks in my tires. You know, when they fall down between the tin plate and the brake drum and go, ar, 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 really make an obnoxious sound. So my testimony is I got them out before they tore anything up. Yeah. I'm getting fast at taking tires off, I'll tell you. Open your Bibles, if you would, this morning to St. Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. I think we're in our fifth week in this incredible, incredible letter. We've been talking about our status, our status, not status in the sense of social status, but our status in the kingdom, status with our God. And Paul's been talking about the status of the believer. And we've observed so far that our status includes our adoption. We are the children of God. God has made us his children. That's a product of redemption, our being redeemed. The blood of the Lamb, we should be able to always say amen to that. It's a direct result of our being indwelt by the Spirit of God. And to that end, we are sealed as His. That's fabulous. We've also got the status of citizens. We talked about that last week. We're members of a community. And with that comes a clear distinction between that which is in and that which is out. Praise God, we are inside the community of faith. With that comes identity. We are identified as his. Whatever else may be said about us, whatever else may befall the Christian, whatever else, whatever descriptive term may be placed upon a Christian, it is always true that we are identified as his children, as citizens of his kingdom. And his protection, and that doesn't mean that nothing bad will ever happen, because we know bad things do happen. But nothing happens without his seeing it. Nothing happens without him watching over us. And nothing happens that he cannot ultimately work to our benefit. That's what it means when the Bible says he causes all things to work together for good. Not that bad things won't happen, but that he will, through even the hardest of things, work our good. And, of course, that's pretty hard to accept sometimes. It is, as we say, a tenet of faith. But then again, all of this is by faith. Everything that we receive of him, we receive by faith. So that's important. And we also have the status of members of his household. Paul said in verse 19 of chapter 2, we are of God's household. Our relationship with God is familial. We're a family. It's important to be mindful of. And we're also being built into a temple. He also says that. So with all of these benefits, all of these associations, all of these connections, this status... We observed last week there are both privileges and responsibilities. And, of course, the privileges are many. Um, but when we came to the responsibilities, and we read those, those final verses, I'll read them again. Paul says, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Well, when we read that, and we spoke of the responsibilities that are ours as members of a community, as members of a family, as, as, as the living stones in a temple, all those benefits that are ours, um, and we talked about the responsibilities, uh, I, I simply commented that our primary responsibility is just to be cooperative, just to go along with what God is doing. And to be really honest, when I said, was saying that, I was thinking, there's more here to this that I'm not getting. 
And so I took the opportunity to ask a couple people during the week, you know, how did you feel like at the end of the message last week? Did you feel like, and they all finished the sentence like, yeah, you left something out. So clearly I left something out, right? And that's in the area of our part, our responsibility. So through the week, um, I read back through the chapter again several times, and I, and I went ahead and I fin- read the whole book again a couple times, and I've come to the conclusion that that's pretty much what the whole rest of the book is about. It's about how we respond to the reality of being citizens in the kingdom, members of his household, adopted as his children, of all those benefits. Really, the rest of the book is about uh, the, the, our responsibility, how we should respond to those realities. And so that's, the, I guess, the lens, I would say, through which we're going to look at the rest of the book. So chapter 3, if you would, now we're going to start reading in the, third, in the first verse. Paul writes this. For this reason, I, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed he heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. And by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, but has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. Father, we thank you for your word, Father. And as as Paul writes the Ephesian church and he talks about their status, all that it means to enter into a faith relationship, both individually and corporately, Father. Father, we know there's truth for us, and we pray you would help us to hear your word for us this morning. Jesus' name, amen, amen. So in chapter 3, Paul turns to the matter of responsibility and response. He talks about his own response, and he does so talking about a mystery. This mystery, three times in these few verses, he talks about mystery, right? And then he proceeds to lay a foundation for explaining just what this mystery is. And I I believe Paul does it the way he does because what he's saying is going to be really radical. I don't know how many of you ever lived in a, in a, in a foreign country or lived in, really anywhere where the, where the culture or the society was markedly different than what you come from. But you'll note if you've had that experience, you've probably had that experience of saying something and immediately knowing it was the wrong thing to say or do. Like, I don't know what I just did, but somebody tell me because I never want to do it again, right? You use a word or something or a gesture or something, right? Everybody wave hello, right? Don't do that in Greece. Um, Yeah, that's like the worst. Anyway, I won't tell you what it means, Um, but it's not nice. So you can say or do something that just totally shuts everything down, right, with a simple word, right? And that's just because cultures are so drastically different. And and that's kind of what Paul is doing here, not that it's bad. But Paul does something here. He uses a word that would have caused his entire Ephesian audience to go, what? Stop everything. Did Paul just say what I thought he said? Did Paul just write something that it's right there, I can see it. What in the world is he talking about? That kind of sudden, shocking, radical statement. Now, we don't see that necessarily because we're not in that culture. We're not in that setting. And this is a classic example where, you know, try to cross that cultural bridge of 2,000 years, thousands of miles, and a lot of, you know, 
huge social difference is really important for us to see exactly what Paul is talking about. Because when Paul uses this word mystery, it is an extraordinary, extraordinary thing. He uses it in verse 3, he uses it in verse 6, and he uses it in verse 9. It is a word that definitely got their attention. We need to understand we're talking about a society, a culture, a time where the mainstream faith, and you know what I mean by the mainstream faith or the mainstream religion? You know, like in the United States, we can tell, still probably say that the mainstream religion is like more or less Christianity. That doesn't mean most people are Christians by any sense of the word. But the worldview, the perspective, even of people that don't profess to be Christians at all, much of their worldview is still rooted in the in Judeo-Christian perspective. Right? Our mainstream thinking is still largely Christian. Right? You want the proof of that, just wait for Christmas. Everybody celebrates Christmas, right, whether they're Christians or not. Right? Well, in the first century, mainstream religion was paganism. That's what everybody was. They were all pagans. Now, there were... Pagans, like, you know, people are Christians now. They celebrate Christmas even though they don't believe it. They may even celebrate Easter, even though they don't understand it. Well, most people in the first century would have been mainstream pagans. You know, they would have gone to the temple of Zeus when it was appropriate to go to the temple of Zeus. They would have made the necessary offerings when it was necessary. But they didn't really, weren't any more serious about it than most Americans are serious about their faith. But there were a lot of people, probably not a majority, but a lot of people that were very serious about their faith, even though they were pagans. They were seriously pagan. And the way they exercised their faith was commonly through what we would call the mystery religions. And these were extremely popular. A lot of them were associated with, with agrarian groups. But virtually every trade, every profession had its mystery religion. Every city, every community, even most families would be associated with one of these mystery deities, one of these mystery religions, right? And the whole idea was, you know, let's put yourself again in, in the agrarian situation. You're going to plant some crops and you're really hoping they grow. You really need a harvest in order to survive. And let's face it, you have very little control over that but you come to understand there's a particular deity that does. It may be a deity over all agriculture, or it may just be the deity over a particular kind of agriculture where you live, but there's some deity that controls the growth of crops. So you need to make that deity happy. You want that deity to like you. You want his or her favor, and you don't know how. That's the mystery. How? So you're first going to have to find out because there's going to be a group someplace that really knows how to worship this deity. They understand how to make the crops grow, right? So first of all, you have to find out where they meet. That's a mystery. You have to find out, once you know where they meet, how to get in the front door. That's a mystery. And once you're in the front door, you need to know what to do in order to appease that particular deity. All of those are mysteries. Now, there are people that know those things. And they'll be very happy to share them with you for a price. Right? This is commonplace in the first century. And it's all about knowing where they are, how to get in the door, and how to please this particular deity. And if you're in desperate need for your crops to go, maybe you've had a couple of bad years, you're going to do anything you need to do to make it happen. That was common thinking. That's the predominant thinking in any trade, any profession, any area of life. 
Every part of life is ruled by this worldview of paganism. Okay. And it's under this umbrella of mysteries, finding out what to do. That obviously is not what Paul's talking about. So when Paul used this word mystery, and they went, what? Is Paul actually thinking like we used to think? No, it's radically different. Because the mystery of the gospel is, is 180 degrees out. First of all, you never have to go looking for it. It's everywhere. They made it known. The early church, even when they were in hiding, they made sure people that wanted to worship knew where to worship. And how do you get it? There's no secret handshake. There's no code. In fact, on the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up and said publicly, repent and be baptized, all of you, for the forgiveness of sins. The way into the kingdom has always been publicly proclaimed for all who were interested to hear. That's not the mystery. The mystery is radically different. It's not about secrecy to get in the door or what to do. No. That's always been as... In fact, anyone that suggests there is anything about the Christian faith that approaches that kind of mystery, frankly, should be shunned. That's not the mystery of the Christian faith. The mystery of the Christian faith is simply this. The mystery of the Christian faith is, as Paul says in verse 6, that Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That was the mystery, and now the, and now the mystery is officially over. Paul is saying that up to this point in time, up till the first century, that whole idea has been unknown. That whole idea that Jew and Gentile will suddenly be brought together into one body, the body of Christ, is a radically new idea. It's an entirely new thing, surprising to both Jew and Gentile. Paul said this back in chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in the ordinance, that in himself he might make them both into one new man, thus establishing peace and reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. Now the idea that a Gentile could be attached to Israel, that wasn't new. It was rare, it wasn't encouraged, but it wasn't new. Gentiles could proselyte and become part of Israel. That wasn't new. What was new was that Jew and Gentile alike would be joined into one entirely new thing. Think about this, if you will. When Paul talks in Romans about Gentiles being grafted in, I think most of you are familiar with that. It's Romans chapter 11. When Paul talks about Gentiles being grafted in, he talks about we Gentiles, wild branches of a wild vine, being grafted in. We are grafted into the vine. The, the Jew of the nation of Israel is the true branch drawn from that same vine. Wild branches aren't grafted to natural branches or true branches as wild branches were grafted to the true vine. Just as the Jew who turns away from God, and Paul says is broken off, can be grafted back in. 
to the vine. Paul is now saying that unlike the old economy, as explained in the Old Testament, now Jew and Gentile alike equally grafted into the same vine. One whole new thing. One whole new body. We are grafted in. And here's the mystery. That was the plan all along. I don't know if you ever thought about this. I gave a lot of thought to this this week. If you follow the narrative of the Old Testament, how the Old Testament worked, put yourself in the place of a Jew of the first century waiting for the Messiah to come. You had your expectation of Messiah. Jesus obviously wasn't what they were looking for. They missed it. But put your mindset in that of a first century Jew, fully educated in the scriptures, you're looking for the Messiah to come. Your anticipation is the Messiah is going to, first and foremost, kick out these thinking Romans, right? He's going to purify the people of Israel of all their stinking Greek thinking and return them to the true worship of God, of the Lord, right? Then what? Then what? It just goes on the same. Nothing really changes. There was no expectation as a product, and I'm not faulting the Old Testament by this, I'm talking about the perspective that was, was born out of their understanding of the Old Testament, there's not a perspective that there's going to be a significant change that will extend into eternity. That's just not there. Right? It's not until Jesus comes as true Messiah and reveals that the whole plan extends into eternity that we get the full picture. This is why, it's, why Paul says that the law, that Christ is the end of the law. That is to say, not the end of the law, but the point of the law. It pointed to the person of Christ because only in him does the law find any kind of eternal fulfillment. So the mystery is really twofold. The mystery is that Jew and Gentile are brought together into one new body, and that new body continues on into eternal, into the eternal, radically radically different. Everything to this point, from the perspective of Jew and Gentile alike, was focused on this world, life in this world, and gods who were gods of the people they were gods of and not anybody else's. It was a polytheistic society. Everybody had their own deity. Each nation, tribe, city, family had its own. Each tribe, each major event the idea that there was but one true God never struck, never came to people's minds. All of humanity and all of the affairs of humanity, that there was one God over all these things, that was foreign to people's thinking. And in large part, even to the Jews. Yes, the Old Testament spoke of God as the God of all the earth. You go back to the creation story, it's clear. But if you think about the experience of the Jewish people, when they came out of Egypt, they talked about the gods of the Egyptians. As they passed through the wilderness, they spoke of the gods of the Amorites, different gods. As they entered into the land, they spoke of the gods of the Canaanites, right? Yes, there were passages like Habakkuk 2. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. The truth was there. He is Lord of all. But from a perspective, 
Everything was regionalized, nationalized, right until the very end. Even in Zephaniah, one of the later prophets, we read this. The Lord will be terrifying to them, speaking of those that had brought destruction to Israel. He will starve all the gods of the earth. Now, we know what that meant. Those gods were false gods. They were demons. Empty idols, as Isaiah says. But in the mindset of people, each place had its own god, many gods, right? Even if somebody understood there was one true God, that was not a preeminent in their thinking. Even if a Jew understood, based on their experience, that there was but one true God, he was just not interested in the Gentiles. The Jews referred to the Gentiles as dogs, and they pretty much thought their God thought the same way. That wasn't true. But that was the perspective. So the mystery is that all of this is changing. There is one Lord who is Lord of all. There is one true God who is interested in the Gentiles as he is in the Jews. And he's fashioning something new through the person of Christ that extends into eternity. That's this mystery that Paul is talking about. That's not how people thought in the first century. That's how Paul thought. The law is fulfilled in Christ. We come into a relationship that extends in eternity. And in the New Testament, we gain some understanding of what the passage into eternity means. Paul speaks of being at home with the Lord. There he's speaking of his own approaching death. Be of good courage, he said. And I prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Read the Old Testament carefully you don't get any picture of what life after death is like. Read the Old Testament carefully. The rabbinical scholars will say that's because the Old Testament is concerned with how to live your life now. The question of eternity is really just not addressed because until Christ came, there was no answer. There is no answer for eternity outside of the person of Christ. So the Old Testament could not offer that answer, except through prophetic statements that were not easily understood. In the New Testament, we understand that Christ is the point of eternity. All history moved towards a point when all humanity is joined together by faith, all who will answer the call of faith, and welcomed into eternity. He says in verse 11, this is in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried about in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the mystery. Now that's not shocking to us. I think most of what I just said is probably what you expected me to say. But that's because we, didn't have, we don't have the perspective they had. For them, these words were earth-shattering, worldview-changing. Jew and Gentile joined as one? You must be kidding me. Moving towards eternity with a Savior, that was a whole new idea. Now, why is it important for us to know this? Why is it important for us to understand how earth-shattering, worldview-altering all of this is? Well, he says it in verse 13. He says, do not lose heart at my tribulations. Most of us have, I think... Um, a pretty convenient theology. Theology that fits how we live, how we want to live, and as long as how we're living is going well, it works well. But it's when life becomes really, really difficult. 
that that convenient theology is shaken and we're forced to look a little bit deeper in what we believe. And if we don't have answers at a deeper level of what we believe, or maybe they're the same answers but with more conviction, it gets a lot harder. Paul says, do not lose heart at my tribulations. Life is still hard. There are difficulties. Life is still in process. Yes, moving toward a predetermined end, thus we shall always be with the Lord, Paul says in another place. But these are truths we need to deliberately keep in our mind. It's so much different when we're focused on the things of eternity, when we're confident on the things of eternity, when we're confident on the assurances of our Lord before the difficulties strike. So Paul reminds them, do not lose heart. There are some truths we really need to know if we would make this journey successful. Look at the last three verses of the chapter. Paul says this. Or look at the verses, yeah, 14 through 19. Verse 19 through the end of the chapter. I'm sorry, let me back up. Look at verse 14. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knee before the Father, for whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of glory, to be strengthened through power, or with power, through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ might dwell in your heart through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, might be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. There's promises there that we need to know. There's promises there that we need to have locked securely in our mind before the difficult times come. There's a promise of strength in verse 16. There's a promise of his abiding presence in verse 17. There's a promise of increased understanding in verse 18. And there's the promise of the experiential knowledge of the love of Christ in verse 19. Those are promises we need to have. Those, are so much more, those promises are so much better than God's going to pay off my mortgage in time. Those promises are so much better than I'm going to get a new set of wheels when I need it. A promise of strength, a promise of his presence, a promise of understanding, and the experiential knowledge of the love of God. These are the things we need to have in place before the difficult times come. That we might, as Paul says, not lose heart. And the best part is there's a rock-solid basis for all this hope. Verse 20, now, to him who's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we ask or think, According to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. There is a source by which we can anchor these promises in our thinking. I mean, we can read them in the book. We can meditate on them and, and, and grow in our understanding of them but there's another way we anchor these promises even more solidly at the very depth of our being. He just said it. It's in his church. It's in his body. As a body of believers, as we lean into one another through the everyday of life, through the joys of life and the crises of life, these truths, these promises become ever more real. And that is the source of strength that we need. I believe that now more than I have ever believed it. Now, you may think, well, yeah, you're a pastor. You're supposed to be all about the church. 
No, I'm speaking of a personal individual level. As an individual, I am compelled to lean into the church more than I ever have because that is where these promises are made real. And I know it to be true. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, as I, I can only imagine, Father, as the Ephesian church was reading this letter, it was being read to them. I don't know exactly how it worked, Lord. But as they were hearing this letter read and they hear, uh, heard the, the word mystery, they went, whoa, what's Paul talking about? Is he talking about this stuff down the street? Is he talking about what they do up at the Temple of Artemis? No, it wasn't that at all. It was the, it's incredible truth. Foreign to man before your son made it real on earth, Lord. That you would unique, that you would unite every tongue, every language, every nation, every person together, Father. Father, as you had shown Israel to be a people called to yourself, Father, that you were in the business of doing that. You were in the business of calling people to yourself, Lord. That marvelous model that Israel in the Old Testament shows us, Lord. You would call a people to yourself, Lord. So, Father, now you would call of every nation people to yourself in your church, Lord. And, Father, I pray that we would be wise, Lord. We would be wise to lean into this beautiful thing you've given us, your body, your temple, your household. That, Lord, in it we would find the realization of these great promises that equip us to face the challenges we face every day. Father, it's funny how we, we get surprised sometimes. We act shocked when the hard stuff comes our way, and yet, Lord, we know. Jesus, you told us in this world we would have tribulation. It's a promise you made, but, Father, you promised to be with us. Jesus, you said you'd be with us, and, Father, we realize that we have that presence in this beautiful body you call your church. Make us wise, Lord. Make us wise to lean heavily into your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together this morning and worship.